we've been in a series called Imago Dei, means made in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. And so in the same way that we pursue the least of these, we also have to look in the mirror and recognize, hey, that's, that's our identity. As human beings, from the beginning, God made us male and female in his image. We've been looking at Genesis 1, starting in 26, verse 26, and uh, it, says, it says this, let us make mankind, God said, in our image and our likeness so that God, or so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them the first week. The series, we talked about how this teaches us that we are to reflect God's image as his representatives here on earth. So reflecting God's image means seeing ourselves the way that God sees us and seeing others the way that God sees them. We had amazing, talented artists that painted these pictures as a reflection of the way that they saw these beautiful landscapes. I think I'd rather be there today. Um, Let's take a vote. I'm just kidding. But just dream. If you want to, you know, uh, dream a little bit, here you go. Here's some inspiration for your vacations. Uh, that are coming up. So that's the first thing that we learned, how to reflect. And then last week, we looked at one verse, verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we learned that we're all control freaks. We're created to be. We're actually created to subdue and to rule and have dominion. And so last week, we talked about how instead of trying to rule over a lot, let's start and focus on the little that God's given us and be faithful with that and then allow him to give us more. That's how he works. We also talked about seeing the least of these, those that are often overlooked because we're too busy networking with people in power versus focusing on the ones that need, those made in the image of God. And let's rule by Control, having self-control and uh, providing for them. And then this week, we'll talk about rely, these next two verses. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that is breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. We looked at one verse last week. Two verses today, rely. This verse is teaching us. How do we represent God? Yes, we reflect his image. That is who we are, period. Every human being reflects the image of the creator. The second thing, he created us to rule. But this third one is really important. We rely on him. Why? Because he has given us. Let's flip back to that verse again, please. Verse 29, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. He's provided all that we need. Everything that we need, the Father, the Creator, has provided for us. So we talked about ruling, and we think about jobs, and we think about cultivating, and, and, and all this good stuff. We also have to remember to rely on God. We're going to talk about this morning about how to do that, because Matthew 6 Jesus goes on to say, he, he alludes back to the creation narrative by talking about the birds and, and the lilies, and he says, hey, uh, don't be anxious about your life, 
What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. That means they don't do nothing, nor gather in a barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The answer is yes. You are Imago Dei. I am Imago Dei. We are more valuable. Let's keep on reading. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? We can just stop there, read that, and go home. (laughs) And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. I mean, they don't do nothing. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, oh, of little faith? So God provides. He is the provider. And we can rule and we can do. And that's really, really good. But we need to remember that God and he alone provides. He is enough. So question for you and, and for me, we, we're, we're, most of us, I assume, are followers of Christ. We know Psalm 23, one, uh, like the back of our hand, the Lord is our shepherd, I shall not want. So that's how we're called to live, not in want. So we know all of this, that was all good. My question this morning is why isn't he enough? Why isn't God enough for us? Why is he not? Why don't we just stop and rest and rely on God? Why do we have to continually take control and take matters into our own hands? That's the question that I wanna answer this morning. I wanna look at. And I think we all have to answer that personally because we're all in different circumstances in life. And you may think, well, uh, Jose, uh, there's, there's a lot going on in my life. And if I don't do anything, if I just trust God, I'll lose like big time. I get that. And I think there's a really cool pattern that we'll see as we talk about Abraham. Because he really messes up before he gets it right. Now, I don't know about you, but in my story, I've messed it up plenty of times. God has been faithful to provide even after my mess up. See, here's the thing. There's an ingredient of three things that are going on in here and around there that are causing us to believe that God is not enough. The first one is that there's the father of lies. There's the enemy in chapter three. This is chapter one of Genesis. Chapter three, the serpent, Satan, the enemy, uh, uh, the, the adversary, many different names for the evil one. He shows up and he lies, he deceives and he tells Eve, hey, God told you to eat to not to eat out of all the trees except for that one, right? Why would he do that? He doesn't want you to be independent. He, he, he wants to withhold from you. This giver of life actually wants to take. And we believe that lie. Adam and Eve did, and, and so do we. And it's because we have this heart disease called our sinful nature that wants to be independent of God, wants to rewrite what God said is true by our own terms. We wanna create this, this rule, this domain that has us as kings and queens instead of the creator as the king and relying on him. And then there's this third thing. This one's very important. We live in a world that has patterns that have been created by a lot of people like you and me. 
that are sinful, that choose our way versus God's way. And so we look out into the world and we're like, well, what's going on? Well, this place is not home, my friends. This is not how it is supposed to be. And those of us who recognize that we're the ones that need to rely on God, we need to go to work and we need to be on mission because he wants to use you and I to redeem this place until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. So that's where we're at. That's what's going on in this uh, neediness that we have. We recognize that we are in need, but it's never enough. God is never enough. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a really good friend, not a follower of Jesus, and we were talking about our faith. He grew up Catholic. He was uh, from Europe, never lived anywhere else, just different places in Europe. And, and, and he was really intrigued with why I was going to church. I lived there for a year and, and I'd go to church. And, and he's like, you, you, you're a little different than other people that I know that go to church, meaning I was young. And, and so he asked me uh, one day, like, why do you go to church? And I'm like, man, it's God's, God's everything to me. Like, I need God. I need God every morning. I need God every, I come up short and, it just clicked, and he's like, that's it. That's why I don't go to church. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, I don't go to church because I don't need God. I have everything that I need. I have a good life. Nothing bad's ever happened to me. My parents were awesome. Great job. He didn't need God. Isn't that a great deception that the enemy tries to use? And what is that? That, that we are self, that we can rely on our own strength that we have what it takes to be to, to rely on the things that we can do versus rely on the creator who provides in all circumstances. Paul calls this the secret in Philippians 4. It's one of the most famous verses every athlete on planet earth has quoted it. It's at the end, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, him is Christ. But we don't read the top. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. So Paul's lived in richness, and in he was a Pharisee, meaning he was one of the elite of his people, and he also knows what it is to be in wants. Present day, when he was writing this, he was in prison. So he knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be beaten and persecuted for his faith. I have learned the secret. This, my friends, is the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Teaching my boys this every night, we have a little mission before they go to bed. And it, I don't know, they, they need to be riled up before they calm down. They're three and four, not 13 and 14. I hope that changes by then. But uh, anyway, we do a little mission and, and then there's the climax of the mission where something goes wrong. And, and, and then I, I tell them, but you remember the secret. You know, we're rescuing some uh, hikers on the top of a volcano that's erupting and we show up in a helicopter and then the helicopter breaks down and, and what's the secret? And, and they repeat, I can do all thanks to Christ who gives me strength because no matter what we're going through in life, that's enough. That's enough for us to know and, and, and to dig into so that we can give credit to the provider. Let's talk about Abraham. Because Genesis 1 happened, that's when we learned that we need to rely on God. Genesis 3 then happened, that's Adam and Eve. They did not rely on God, they relied on their own understanding, they believed the serpent, and then things start to get bad 
quickly. Cain kills Abel. We have the flood. I mean, humanity becomes corrupt really fast. And it becomes, uh, Genesis chapter 11 ends with this Tower of Babel where people are resourceful. They're self-relying on one another. They build this tower, and instead of bringing praise to God, they bring praise to themselves, and God scatters them in his kindness because he knows that is no bueno when people unite and try to form a, a, a society independent of God. So Genesis 12 zooms in to this one man that we're going to talk about this morning, Abraham. And Abraham was like you and me, normal guy, nothing special about this guy. God decided to choose him and make a promise to him. He said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to bless the entire world through your family, through your kids and your grandkids and your great grandkids. This is where we get the rest of the Old Testament is the lineage of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's amazing. He says, I will bless you to be a blessing. That's for us today too. He blesses us so that we can bless others. It's not about us. It's about passing it forward. Here's what Abraham does. He receives that promise and then bam, famine strikes. And what does he do? He goes away from the place that God told him to go to. So he runs. And he, he runs because there's a famine. That's a really big problem. We don't have that problem. We have never had that problem here. Famine. Well, that's a big issue. And, and so Abram's got to get to work. Got to go. Got to feed my family. But he starts relying on his strength. He then gets to Egypt. And his wife, Sarah, is real pretty. And so he recognizes that Pharaoh is gonna take her. And when they find out that she's his wife, they're gonna kill him to have to take her back then. That's how things rolled back then. And so he tells her, hey, lie and tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. That way they'll actually bless me and I'll be safe. And so they do, and they take the wife and they give to Abraham a blessing, Egyptian blessing. They give lambs and camels and oxen and male servants and he female servant. Why is this important? Well, because later on, Sarah and um, Abraham can't have kids. 10 years go by. And Abraham's like, hey, remember the promise, God? Where, where, where's, where's this family that you promised us? And Sarah says, I'm done. My patience is, I'm not trusting God to provide. I'm going to go ahead and, and make this plan and gives Abraham to a female servant an Egyptian female servant named Hagar. And then they have Ishmael. And uh, this whole time, where, where is God's promise? He's thrown that away. <laughs> but what does God do? He comes through still. He says, you're gonna have a son. And what do they do? They laugh. Both of them were too old to have kids. That's why they named them Isaac, which literally means he will laugh. Abraham got it wrong. Sarah got it wrong. They missed it. They got hasty. Does God give up on them? Nope. He continues on. He is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, even 
when we take, even when we take shortcuts or we go uh, the long way, God is faithful to provide. And this is what we read in Genesis 22. I want to read this story of Abraham's now obedience to God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. By the way, this is the first time that we read the word love in the Bible, ahava. Super cool that it's talking about the love of a father to a son. And go to the land of Moriah. Moriah is important. We'll come back at the end of the verse and talk more about Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. This is strange for us to understand today, but back then, child sacrifice was a normal thing. And so maybe Abraham was thinking, Yahweh, this God, this Lord that promised me is like the other gods. And, and maybe he recognized that Yahweh was more powerful, so he was going to put his trust in him after failing many times already. And so he prepares. He puts one foot in front of the other, and it says that he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. This is key also, wood on the top, on the back of a son's uh, back going up to sacrifice. Does this sound familiar? And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they both went together. And they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So many things in this story. Two things that I want us to take away. First, no matter what Abraham had done in the past, this time he chose to trust God. And trusting equals obedience. It's not just blind faith, like, God, I trust you, we'll see what happens. No, he did something about it. He got his son ready. He got his servants ready. He got the wood ready. He cut it up. He went up to the mountain. Trust equals obedience. And then the second thing is that God requires sacrifice, atonement. 
He requires a reckoning for the blood that we uh, commit, the, the, the thing, the evil that we commit here on earth requires some sort of sacrifice. And I don't know what Abraham was thinking, but perhaps he thought that this would be his sacrifice for coming up short. But God's plan is amazing. And God's provision is amazing in this place, Mount Moriah, is the same mountain that in 2 Chronicles 3, many, many, many generations later, Solomon built a temple where there will be many sacrifices offered up to the Lord. Many people would come to offer up goats and sheep and pigeons so that they can be reconciled to God. And most importantly, this teaches us that God loved you and I so much that he sent his one and only son. He gave him a, put a cross on his back and ultimately Jesus poured out his blood on that cross to totally atone for our sins. He provides and he is enough. Is that true in your life? Is he enough? Is, is that really enough? You're like, yeah, I got that, Jose. We're at church. I got to hear that. But I don't really believe it. My hope is that you would dig into that this morning and that you would maybe in faith, maybe as Abraham was walking up in faith, not knowing what, not knowing what he was, uh, what was going to happen, he would tell his son, hey, I'm just going to trust that God will provide before he knew that God was going to provide a ram, a lamb, a male lamb for the sacrifice. That's the type of faith, my friends, that we need to live out as followers of the one who gave his life up for us. The truth is, is that when we live in self-reliance, we end up looking like it. And when we live relying on God, we end up looking like it. Jeremiah 17, five through eight talks about this dichotomy of what it looks like to trust in man and what it looks like to trust in God. Verse five, it says, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from your flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. That does not look pretty. I don't want to be like a shrub. I don't want to be in a wasteland. And I certainly don't want to be alone. But that's what happens at some point, not immediately, but at some point, that is what happens when we trust in man. We run from God. We're like a shrub in the desert. We have no hope and we are alone. And Jeremiah contrasts what it looks like when we then trust and God, here's what he says, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. I took this picture of my favorite cypress tree in Wimberley. It's right by the Cypress Creek. And look, our name is Cypress Creek Church, so I feel like we need to claim it. 
And, and I, I want to look like this tree as a church family and also individually. Look how lush, grand it is. And did you see that dead oak tree next to it? I don't know if it was oak wilt or what, but something got it. That's what happens again. Maybe on this, in this life, but certainly in the life to come when we choose to run away from our creator and rely on our own strength versus rely on the one who provides. I wanna live like the cypress tree. What about you? The flow of the river reminds me of uh, John chapter four, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and, and Jesus offers her living water. They're talking about Jacob's well, which is also here too, not the original one, but you know what I mean. And, and, and Jacob's well is, is, is not living water because it's, it's, it's not like ours here. It's a spring. It's just a well. It's, it's mucky. And Jesus said, My, the water that I offer you, if you drink from it, you will never thirst again. Why? Because when we drink from it, we'll be satisfied. He will be enough. Let's go back to that contrast, please. Confidence in God, not confidence in my own doing. Tree by living water. We're planted right by the source of living water. We're abiding in the Lord. We have no worries no matter what it looks like, no matter what our circumstances look, no matter where it's super hot or super difficult or super scary. We have no worries and we bear fruit. My friends, let's trust in God and look like that cypress tree. Worship team, you can come back up. What do we do? What's the practical do when it comes to saying, God, you are enough? Jesus modeled it. He tells us that we need to deny ourselves, that we need to take up our cross, and we need to follow him. It's that simple. That's what it means to not rely on ourselves and rely on God. Here's this scripture from the gospel of Matthew. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We've talked about reflecting God's image, ruling in this one, relying. We need to recognize this is the most important one. We need to hold them all in balance. This one's often missed, that he has given us everything that we need. So my hope this morning is we sing a new song called Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. I pray that we in our hearts would tell God, Lord, uh, this is not a good circumstance. You know, God, what's going in. You know what's going on. But in my heart, we say, Lord, you're enough. What you, Jesus, did for me on the cross is enough. Knowing that my name is written in the book of life is enough. So we deny ourselves. We take up our cross. We recognize our need for the crucifixion of Jesus. And we follow the resurrected Savior. And for some of us, this may be the day where we get to say, I'm at my wit's end. I, I, I am in that place where I know I don't have what it takes. And my encouragement for you, if you haven't yet said yes to Jesus, make that decision today and just say, Lord, I surrender. I can't do this life alone. I need this living water. I need a source that is different because what I'm doing is not working. I feel like that cursed 
oak tree. And he promises everlasting life. He promises us to never abandon, never forsake us. So if you're able to, let's stand up and let's close in prayer before we worship.